As we turn to the reading of the word in Genesis chapter 24 this morning, we're going to be praying uh, for the Jahanka people in Mali. Uh, they are uh, 6,500 there, uh, but 110,000 souls throughout the world. Uh, they are, um, they practice Islam, and they have no scripture in their language, and they are classified as completely unreached, and so we'll pray for them uh, when we... Uh, when we ask God to bless our time in the Word. If you'd uh, open your Bible to Genesis 24, we'll be reading from there. Uh, you might think this is a long chapter. It will take seven minutes, approximately, maybe nine. Um, so uh, let's, let's read. The Scripture says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all of his camels. 
The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Whoa. Let the virgin, turn it down just a little bit. Um, Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. 
Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. And after that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and went on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word, and we're mindful of the fact that there are 110,000 people throughout the world, the Jahanka people group, who do not know you and cannot read this story for themselves because the scripture is not in their language. And so we pray, Father, that as we have given and as we pray for them, that you would make your name great among them. We pray that you would send faithful missionaries to preach the gospel and to translate the word and that they would hear and grow and be amazed by the accounts of what you do in your word and in the way that you transform their lives and culture. Father, as we come to this story, I pray that we would be amazed and that with hearts opened, as we listen with eyes 
and ears of faith that we would see Jesus, that we would hear of your wondrous works, that we would hear how we're to walk according to your ways and in your fear and according to your word. And as we are encouraged, I pray that our lives would be transformed. Father, write the lessons of this text on our heart that we might be pleasing in the way that we live. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What an amazing account. Um, I love this story. It's very, very vivid. Uh, you, you may be put off by some of the repetition of it, but in, in the Jewish culture, that's a way of, of drawing attention to what's actually important. What is repeated over and over is, is what's of, of, uh, of, of emphasis, uh, what's of, uh, of importance. Today, we can just use italics or bold or you know, speak loudly or whatever, but they used repetition to, to build anticipation and to explain meaning. Uh, there's something uh, amazing about that story. If you didn't know it, there's a, there's a, you may have become so familiar with it, if you do know it, that there's a tension in the story that slowly rises and, and builds in intensity. Um, I'll confess, I, I read this story, and it, it occurred to me that it's a story about Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, Laban, kind of causing some trouble there. But in preparing and reading, I noticed something that hopefully that you heard, that you saw. Uh, this is a story about the guy. This, this story is about God's faithfulness, yes, but it's also about this, this guy, this, this nameless guy who shows up in this, in this story, Abraham's chief servant. Some of the scholars call him Eliezer, that's who Spurgeon thought he was, the, the servant from Genesis chapter 15, but, but his name isn't here, and so I think that's intentional, the omission of the name. This is just some guy who serves Abraham, and, and the, the amazing faithfulness and testimony that he he carries out towards his master and the way that he leans on the Lord. And so uh, I want to look at 10 lessons from the story. We got through nine of them in the early service. We're going to do 10 uh, here because I'm going I'm to make sure I, I watch my time just a little bit better uh, in, this, in this sharing of the message. Uh, let's just jump in with 10 lessons from this account. Uh, number one, as believers, we ought to be guided by godly principles and by the big story that God is telling. As believers, we ought to be guided by godly principles and the big story that God is telling. We begin the text, Abraham is old. Uh, there has been no word from the Lord in a long time. Uh, the last word recorded from the Lord is that he go and sacrifice Isaac, and he was old in our esteem then, but in, in biblical terms, he's now old and well advanced in years, which means that, that he's declining and his death is coming. There has been no direct word from the Lord about what to do next, which means there's no plan for the next generation. And so Abraham is thinking, I, I must do something. And so he speaks to his servant. Uh, there's this, this very kind of odd way of making a covenant to our culture, which was, which was considered a very serious oath, the, the putting the hand under the thigh. And so I can't, I can't do it myself. It kind of would look like this, you know, putting, putting the hand there. And so you're, you're kneeling in front of this person and he's telling you what you're going to do. And, you know, if you, if you refuse, maybe he can like grab you by the throat and strangle you you or something. You know, there's just this very intense moment. Serious oath. Swear that you will do this. That, that, 
that the Lord, that, 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 that you will, I'm making you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you won't take a wife for my son. I need, a, I need a wife for my son. I need to secure his posterity. I need a wife for my son, but not from here, not from among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, um, but go to the country and to my people and get a wife for my son Isaac. So, so two qualities in the oath here. One, uh, no Canaanite wife for my son. And, and you'll recall that the servant asked his anxious question, more on that in just a moment. What if, what if I go find someone and she won't come here? Do I, do I go take Isaac then and bring him back there? And he says, no, no leaving the land. You'll, you'll recall every time Abraham leaves the land, trouble happens, right? He goes down into Egypt and bad stuff happens. He goes to Abimelech's land and bad stuff happens. Abraham has learned this lesson to stay on the land. And so we see the mature man of faith and his godly principled focus here. One scholar said that the man of faith in his declining years holds doggedly to two truths. When when my dog gets something that he wants, like a, a piece of chicken off the table... Or, or a rawhide bone, he clamps on that thing and he, he growls and, and will bare his teeth and will nip to defend it. This is, this is the image that the scholar says. This is the Abraham, the old man, with his two pieces of his faith-filled worldview. One is faithfulness toward his son Isaac. He is going to secure the promise for his son. He's going to need a wife if the Lord is going to make him a great nation. And so Abraham needs to make this happen. But then loyalty to the Lord is the other element. He needs to stay on the land. Isaac needs to stay here, and he needs to not get mixed up with the Canaanites who will draw him away. You'll remember that Abraham refused to make alliances with the king of Sodom and others who would, who would draw him off course. And so, and so he needs to go in and get a, a good, fitting a wife for Isaac. Because if Isaac doesn't have a bride, then there will be no way to fulfill the promise. And, and he doesn't know this, but, but he knows, he doesn't know in fullness what this means, but he knows that there'll be no land and there'll be no great nation. What he doesn't necessarily know is that there won't be a Christ who will come through his lineage. And that means that salvation and the return of the Holy Spirit to dwell in human beings will not happen. As Christians, our focus ought to be the same faithfulness towards the church and towards its mission and loyalty towards the Lord and his will and his ways. But our focus ought to be built on clearer, surer, better promises given by Christ. We know in exhaustive detail what God desires to do in the world, to make disciples of every tribe and tongue and nation, and that we live in love and mark ourselves out as his disciples in that way, don't we? We know this clearer than Abraham knew it. We ought to be guided in all that we do by godly principles in light of the the big story that God is telling throughout history. Second lesson is that we ought to be faithful to banish anxiety with godly thinking. We ought to be faithful to banish anxiety with godly thinking. The, The servant's anxious or, or concerned nature shows up in this story several times. He asks the question early, what if, what if she will not come with me? I, I, I understand I need to secure a wife for your son. And, 
And so that seems to be the big goal. What if she won't come? Do I, do I bring him to her? And Abraham says, if she won't come, I will release you because Isaac needs to remain here. And so I could see a little bit of Abraham maybe learning from the, the sacrifice scenario on the mountain. You know, I was ready to, to plunge the knife into Isaac, believing that the Lord would raise him from the dead. But the Lord worked it out another way. Perhaps there's another way. But I'm going to, knowing that he needs a wife, I'm going I'm to send the servant on this mission. Uh, what does the servant do throughout the story? He kills his anxiety with an awareness of God's presence and promises. He postures himself in a very humble way, depending and praying on the Lord. He appeals to the Lord. He prays to him, O oh Lord, God of my master, Abraham. He, he appeals to this relationship that they have within the covenant, and he's faithful to this plan. He knows that, he knows that God is, is building a great nation through Abraham, that that's the promise, and so he's going to remain faithful to that. He also demonstrates what we learn later in the New Testament, that God gives wisdom to those who ask. What does James 1.5 say, say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord, and he will receive it. God, God is not picky about who he gives wisdom to. He gives wisdom to those who ask. We also have a promise in the New Testament that says that our labor is not in vain. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Abraham's servant is going to accomplish something great in the name of God for the purpose of advancing God's redemptive program. And so he knows that his effort and energy will not be wasted, and so he uses that to crush his anxiety throughout the story, repeatedly praying over and over and over. As we go through our day, as we go through our lives and we encounter different difficult situations, uh, the bank is empty right now. I'm not sure how we're going to survive in our business if we lose this client. My car is broken down. My child might be sick. What we need to do is to, to, to connect these anxious thoughts and these anxious situations up with the greater story of what God is doing and how he's been faithful to us in the past, what he has promised for us in the future, and use it as a weapon to crush our anxiety. Lesson number three is this. Pursue worthy goals for a worthy God through worthy principles. Pursue worthy goals for a worthy God through worthy principles. The, the, I think one of the great crises of our age is that so many seem to be living accidentally. They're, they're just, they're kind of living. They have no guiding principles. They're just doing what they're told, doing what comes next. You know, they, they vote because they get a sticker. They buy a house or get married because that's what they're supposed to do. They have a kid because that's what they're supposed to do. They get a job, you know, and there's no real thought put into a whole lot of things. Or, or the values that go into making the decisions don't demonstrate thorough, rigorous thinking. The servant himself is a clear, wonderful example of intentional living here. He pursues this goal decisively and built on specific principles. 
He's very clear in what he prays for. Show steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham by revealing the specific woman who's supposed to be Isaac's bride. For Christians, asking God, we ought to know this, asking God to continue his plan, build his kingdom, further his glory, does not make him angry. It pleases God. What does the Bible say in Matthew 6, chapter Uh, Chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, all the things that you're anxious about, will be added to you. Asking God to continue his plan, build his kingdom, and advance his glory often results in our joy. It often results in our encouragement and our happiness and our increased faith and delight in God. Look at the servant's example. In verse 12, he says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, grant me success today. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And then he prays, verse 14, let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. And then in verse 27, He prays, and this is what he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. He prays a very bold prayer that that results in clear guidance from the Lord, a clear answer to him. This, by the way, is the appropriate kind of prosperity prayer. The bookshelves that are filled with what you could call Christian, in quotes, writing, the television shows, the radio shows, the preachers who stand in pulpits and promise individual prosperity if you declare it and act and pray by faith are filling the American church and the minds of Christians with lies. But there is an appropriate kind of prosperity prayer. It's this, Lord, make your name great. What does Jesus teach the disciples to pray? Hallowed be thy name. May your name be increasingly ever more holy in the world. John 14, 14, Jesus says this, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we say, that's not true, because I've asked lots of things. And then I prayed In Jesus' name, amen. No, no, no. Praying in Jesus' name is praying consistent with his will and his desire and his goal and his plan. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so the encouragement to Christians is to make your life's work and goals worth it. Worthy endeavor for a worthy God based on worthy principles. How can I be faithful, you might ask? Look at the servant. He has a noble task. He relies on a worthy God. He is looking for a worthy woman, and he pursues his task to an acceptable and a decisive finish. If you need guidance in your life on a particular issue or an area of concern or something you're anxious about, ask yourself these questions. What is God doing in the world? What has God promised to believers? What has God said he requires of us? And in the light of all that, how can I be faithful? 
and you'll have your answer. Lesson number four, guidance given by God will not banish risk, danger, confusion, and the need for patience and discernment. Guidance, when given by God, will not remove risk, danger, confusion, and the need for patience and discernment. The servant, servant knows this very well. He, he realizes that we have to, as believers, pray. We must pray. At the well, he prays, O Lord God of my master, please grant me success today. He appeals to the Lord for victory and success. There also needs to be an element of discernment because, because we don't know the end of the story from the beginning. We only know the moment that we're in and the moments that preceded it. God is the one who knows everything from, from the beginning. He knows the end at, at, at the moment that everything starts. He knows how all is going to work out. But we must watch and see. Even, even when the woman begins to, to answer this test that he has laid out there, he still, it says in verse 21, gazes at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Uh, watering camels is not easy. They drink a lot, and they don't need to drink often, but when they are thirsty, they will guzzle enormous quantities of water. And so she's got this enormous, heavy jar that she lets down on her hand. I think it's kind of this motion, you know, here, have a drink, and then she can put it back up on her shoulder. She's got to fill this thing over and over several times to water these ten, ten thirsty camels. And he's sitting there wondering, discerning, watching. The sign was that she would water the camels. Not eight camels, ten camels. Is this the one? Is this the woman? He's discerning. He's watching. Because maybe it's not her. Third, we need to remind ourselves about God's faithfulness in the midst of situations. In verse 42 the servant says, I came here today to the spring and said, Oh Lord, the God of my master Abraham. And so, so he's rehearsing the events up to this point. He's saying them out loud, giving his rationale for why he believes this is the will of the Lord at the moment. Why, why he believes that God is guiding him to this specific situation. And so we need to ask ourselves as we're seeking God's guidance and as, as, we're, as we're trying to discern what the will of the Lord is in the midst of a difficult situation, how did I, how did I get to this moment? Am I in the will of God? Am I acting on on, on godly principles. In light of our own sinfulness and our doubting, we need to be sure to, to look back at God's faithfulness in the past and what we've been convinced of uh, with regard to God's word so that we can continue to be confident of God's guidance in the middle of a difficult situation. Number, uh, another principle here is that we must not be diverted from our course when we understand the will of the Lord. Because receiving guidance doesn't mean that it's just going to be easy street, that everything's going to happen. Receiving guidance means that there may be difficulties and obstacles. More about that in just a second. But look at what the servant says. He, he, he wakes up the next morning. He's like, all right, you know, took us three years, probably the scholars say, to get here. We found the woman. We made the deal. We arranged the bride price. We are going home. Three years on the way home. Let's go. And they're like, stick around for 10 days. And he's like, no, do not delay me. The Lord has prospered my way. Send me away. He wants to move. He does not want to be diverted or distracted. You know, maybe, maybe he's going to decide that he likes it here if he remains too long. And he's going to stay here and he's never going to, going to complete his, his obligation. He does not want to be deterred. There's a kind 
marriage in this passage here between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We need to realize that in our life, we have responsibility in situations too, and God is arranging things. But, but what do we see in this passage? We see the servant praying, believing, seeking, arranging, pressing, refusing to be delayed, and God perfectly coordinating the circumstances, right? But the servant only knows that he must remain determined and press forward in faith. He doesn't know how everything's going to resolve. And distractions arise, and he needs to push through them. There's an answer, I believe, to, or, or an example. This is a vivid example of Psalm 34.4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This is not just, you know, uh, uh, there was a scary person trying to hurt me, and I prayed, and I was rescued. It's, it's these are the things that gnaw at me and nag me in the middle of the night on this long, difficult journey. And I prayed and prayed and prayed, and the Lord answered and delivered me. And so we learn that when God gives guidance, that doesn't mean that there's not still going to be risk, danger, confusion, and the need for patient discernment. Number five, we learn to trust God for provision and direction in the midst of complicated or limiting circumstances. We learn to trust God for provision in the middle of complicated or limiting circumstances. Uh, there is a song, I only know the one line, and so I'm not making this an endorsement of the rest of its content, but the, the line in the song, and I was like, that's true, I like that, says, when you cannot see his hand, trust his heart. We, we, may, we may have confidence in godly principles. We may know that a gentle answer turns away wrath. We may know that, that we're to, to speak words of truth in love to uh, somebody who is straying from the path of truth. We may know that we're supposed to rebuke someone. We may know that we're supposed to be kind. And yet, when we're doing those things, the circumstances may change and we may suddenly think, did I do the right thing? And so we're supposed to, to trust him in the middle of difficult circumstances. Think about the servant's experience here. He asks a question in the middle, in the very beginning, does this girl actually exist? A girl who will leave her country, uh, who is related to, uh, from, from Abraham's tribe, and who will come back to the land. Is, does that woman even exist? What if she won't come? If she does exist, will she come with me? He's still wondering about it in the middle of sharing with Laban. Verse 39, the servant says, I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. He's, he's driving to the point of trying to figure out, can I offer the bride price for this girl and bring her back to Isaac? But he, he trusts based on the strong assurance that he has that God is working. Genesis 24, 7 Abraham says that the Lord who said to your offspring I will give this land to your offspring that's Isaac Abraham said he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there and yet 
there she was, exactly as he had prayed. A three-year journey, likely, to get there, praying, Lord, I need to find this woman, and praying and praying, show her to me, be gracious to me, show steadfast love to me and to my master. And though she is there, though he finds her, he receives the answer to his prayers, God's providence is met with distractions. Right? He's, he's, he's saying, yes, this is Rebecca. I'm going to bring her back to my master. And, and, and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Welcome. Stay. Sit. Eat. And he says in verse 33, I will not eat a single thing until I say what I'm here for. Right? He's, he's on message. He's like, I can just imagine this probably didn't happen. But does he like throw all the food on the floor? Like, no, we need to talk. No, that'd be rude. But that's, it's vivid, his determination. Providence is not just met with distractions, but it's met with obstacles, with crisis. The deal seems to fall apart the next day. They wake up and he's like, all right, thanks. Great to know you guys. See you never. Three years back, right? And, and, and so, so he's getting ready to go on his journey and they're like, no, no, no. We, let's keep her around for a while, maybe 10 days or so. What? He's like, no, no, no. We got to go now. I need to get this young woman back to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will. The elation and delight in his heart is probably much greater because of the circumstances of difficulty than if it had all just come together. Right? When, when God does hard things, our faith grows. When God does simple things, what do we do? We take it for granted, right? You know, we complain about the fact that water's falling out of the sky to fill the reservoir so that we can have food. We're like, it's raining, I can't go to the beach, you know? <laughs> Stupid snow, you know? That's, a, we're, that's, that's how we, we react to simple things. But hard things reveal to us the fact that we need to trust God for this, this great provision. Lesson number six, the servant's request for guidance was consistent with the quality that he was looking for. All right? Let me say that again, because I've said everything again. I'm repeating every point twice this morning. The servant's, but, I'm, but this one's particularly tricky. I'm going to explain it. The servant's request for guidance was consistent with the quality he was looking for. We, as, as Christians, uh, because, because we are justified redeemed, given the righteousness of Christ, and yet at the same time we still struggle with sin, we are very good at defying providence and God's goodness by going off and looking for things in places that we shouldn't, aren't we? Right? We, we say, oh, this is the way the world does it? Cool, I'll do it that way. Oh, oh, I want something? Temptation is, is rising within me? I'll just, I'll go get it. Right? We, we respond to, to, the, to the temptation and the wiles and the traps of the devil. And we wind up in a place and we say, how did I get here? Where was God? Right? Well, expect that a road, if you, if you travel it, if it says do not enter based on clear principles from God's word and we go there, expect nothing good to come of that journey. But when we pray and request guidance consistent with what we know, with what we know is good, with godly principles, then we wind up in the place that, that we desired 
to be. It all has to do with desire, right? You wanted sin and you wound up in disaster. You wanted godliness and, it, and, it, and, it, and you prospered. He goes looking for a wife and he finds a woman and she's beautiful. Uh, she is a virgin. This is important because they want to make sure that there's no other children who could lay claim to the promise. The, the firstborn child needs to be Isaac's. But that's not enough. He's not looking for just a wife. He's looking for a wife fitting for Isaac. There were probably lots of beautiful women that he could have chosen from. But, but he wants to go beyond the skin and to the heart. And so he prays, I want you to make it the one, Lord, who will give me a drink and who will water my camels. Because this is no easy task, watering camels. She finished giving him a drink. She let down her jar and, and gave him a drink. And then she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they've finished drinking. And so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough. And she ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. How, how do you define success when you're praying for guidance? Right? He could have set the bar too low. He could have, have said, I want a beautiful, unclaimed woman. That's what I'm looking for. But he set the bar higher, didn't he? I want a woman who is humble and gracious and kind. And the Lord arranged in his providence for him to find one who was just right. He found both qualities in one person. The remainder of the story, though, demonstrates that she is a keeper. She's somebody that you take home to Abraham, right? This is a woman that you present to Isaac. The story reveals that she's compassionate to people and to animals. She is strong, energetic, and industrious. She's welcoming. Sure, we've got room for you. Come back to the house. And she's also strong-willed, determined, and brave to leave when the, the traps and the greed and the, the kind of twisted uh, bridal arrangements of the family begin to, to be displayed. The servant was looking for something specific, something that pleases God. And when we go to God looking for guidance, we ought to come on the basis of looking for, for that which is pure and good and right. Because we know God's character. Not just, Lord, send me someone so I won't be alone. Right? Because... It'd be very easy for the flesh to say, oh, the answer to the prayer is this creep who's now, you know, lurking around. <laughs> oh, oh, it must be God's will. No. Who, who is it who would be consistent with your will, Lord? This is your character. This is the character of Jesus. Not that I, not that, not that any human can perfectly mimic the character of Jesus, but but man, they ought to try, aren't, aren't, shouldn't they? That's a keeper. How often do we go looking for something God's not pleased with and it ends in disaster? It's because the quality that we're looking for is not present often in the guidance that we're asking for. He set out his target, his goal, his success, and he found it because God is good and kind. Number seven, obedience to God is key in the servant's success. Obedience to God is key. And it's going to be the key in our success as well. We ought to believe that God is going to keep his promises. Over and over in the scriptures, we, we see uh, God 
and, and, and God's people say things like not one good word of all of his promises has failed. God says things like, I will not allow my word to return void, but it will accomplish its purpose. Every promise accomplishes its intent. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says it's required of stewards. And that's what we are, aren't we? Custodians of God's word. Those who've been given the gospel to serve others with it. Those who've been given good, precious, and clear promises, promises relating to Christ and salvation and, 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 and how to live a life that pleases the Lord, we've been given those to care for them. And 1 Corinthians 4.2 says it's required of stewards that they be faithful. And so obedience is key. God is going to keep his promises. The seed must be preserved so the land can be possessed, so Messiah can come, so he can accomplish his work on the cross, be raised from the dead, ascend to heaven, receive the promise of the Father, empty out the promise of the Holy Spirit onto the world so that all nations can believe. And God says in his secret providence to this servant, that's your job. And he smiles and he says, be faithful, go and obey. God provides what's necessary for the promise to transfer to Isaac. Rebecca is there. And God gives what's necessary for salvation in his son. And he gives what's necessary for life and godliness every single day. But when we see it, we need to act. We need to grab it. Like a Frodo moment. This is my dog. This is what he does. He just, he lurks and watches. He is like a ninja dog. He sits off in the distance. He looks totally harmless. He curls up in his little donut shape. But man, when the sandwich or the chicken or the napkin or the plate or whatever is close enough, he snaps into action. He's like, mine. And then he's gone. And Hank's like, my sandwich is gone. And that's the way that we need to be. We need to see, we need to see, oh, my brother has something against me. I need to go and reconcile. Oh, here's a temptation. I need to run from it. Obedience is key to success and blessing. God, deliver me. You know, it's like if, if, if you saw somebody who was near a cliff, you'd be like, hey, don't go near that. And they're like, watch, I'm just going to put my toe over. I'm just going to hang my leg over. I'm just going to sit on the edge. I'm just going to hang by my fingers. And then they're like, why? Why didn't God protect me from this sin? <laughs> Obey, run, flee. It's key to his success. We must trust and act. We must be obedient. We must take steps of faith. Because God will not go back on his promises and he will not go back on his salvation plan or abandon any of his promises, we must not either. Number eight, receiving God's guidance or God's providence or God's provision ought to result in praise. The natural, proud, carnal, wicked man prays for success and then receives it and it inflates him. And he says, look at what my skill has done. Look at, look at what my hand has accomplished. But the godly person sees success as a matter for praise because he is humbled. Providence ought to result in praise. Verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, 
who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. His first thought in his prayer is not, yes, I have done it. His first thought is, blessed be the Lord. His second thought is, this is good for Abraham. And his third thought is, as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Exactly what I prayed for happened. Blessed be the Lord. The Lord, Abraham, and then himself. God's provision resulted in praise towards God. And praise will result. This is interesting. Think about the servant's faithfulness. He is the the human agent, the human means by which God's plan is unfolding. The promise or the, the prayer that they pray over Rebecca as they send her away. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Children and grandchildren and and descendants of Rebecca would become the Jewish people who would praise the Lord. And one of her offspring would be the man who entered the house of the strong man and bound him, rescuing souls from hell. This is fulfilled in Jesus. The providence of God in this particular situation results in the praise of millions eventually. Notice the progressive nature of his praise as as the the situation reveals itself. He has his prayer answered, right? And he is skeptical. He inspects. It says he gazed at her in silence to see whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. On, on On being invited to the home, he's convinced. It says the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. Right, verse 48 says that he, he blessed the Lord. So I, I think in this particular text, not, not everywhere in the Bible, but I think that the worship of the Lord means that, that he thanks God because he's God. But it also says in verse 48 that he blessed the Lord. And I think that perhaps that means he blessed the Lord because he's good. So it's just, it's like, so he understands, I've got to worship God right now. Like, this is so good, I'm going to praise. But then he thinks, you are so good. Right? It's something you offer to a king, but then something you praise and honor because the, that person is truly worthy. And then on learning that she can go, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. He was a convinced worshiper. His eyes were wide open. He saw everything and he saw the goodness of what God had done for them. His, his praise to God was progressive and ours ought to be as well. As we grow and as we, as we see God do great and mighty things in our lives, we ought to respond with greater and greater degrees of praise. Number nine, God's guidance and provision ought to be met with immediate obedience. Point number seven was supposed to be like obedience is key, but I turned it into this point, so we'll just we'll do it again. Um, verse, verse 17 says that the servant ran to meet her. When, when, he, when he saw that she demonstrated the characteristics that, that, that he was looking for, he ran to meet her. When food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. It was immediate obedience. It wasn't eventual obedience. It wasn't when I get around to it, when I, when I feel like it, when I'm in the mood, when I'm having a good hair day, right? When, when, my, when, when everything's going well, when the kids are perfectly obedient and all the vehicles are properly serviced and I've got enough money in the bank account, then I will focus on things of the Lord. No. 
immediate obedience. When they arose in the morning, verse 54, he said, send me away. When the brother and mom say, let her remain with us 10 days, he says, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered me. Send me away. Let us not be that caricature of Christianity as as believers, of those who hear the words of God by the ton and who ignore them regularly. Words and seeds being sown, but then bouncing off hard hearts that refuse to ever obey. I need these words as well. Let us not miss the work of the Lord around us. Let's not be part of the victim culture that constantly embraces excuses of why we cannot do what the Lord is calling us to do. Instead, let us embrace the fact that doing difficult things is part of what it means to be a Christian, but we serve a great, kind, and good God who will make it happen. May we glorify God in the way that we live and walk in God's provision. One scholar says that, that, this, ver- that this passage is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, all just in a story. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And what will happen? He will make straight your paths. Verse 7 goes on to say, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Is that not the way that we ought to pursue the, the Lord in a confusing, distracting, difficult, tempting, immoral world? trusting that he'll make our paths straight, as the scripture says. Number 10. Look for the gospel in life, always. One commentator points out that though she appears perfect, she is not perfect, and by the time Jacob and Esau are are adults, that there will be serious problems within the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, which I was kind of like, why you got to ruin it like that? You know, she's wonderful at this point. She's just a a, a wonderful, uh, 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 seemingly excellent choice as a mate. She's she's wonderful, and I think that she is an image of the gospel. The story is that she is brought to Isaac. And the way the text is written, it's, it's supposed to be written in Hebrew, apparently you understand it this way. In English, it doesn't come across so well, that they see each other at the same moment. He sees the camel train coming and he thinks, that's, that's, that's them. That's their back. And this is, he, he sees and, and maybe his heart leaps at that moment. But she, you know, not looking at a group of 10 camels, looking at one guy in the middle of the field, thinks, that's the guy. Who is that man? So she confirms his identity, and the guy says, that's my master. And then she veils herself as a bride being brought to her husband in that culture. She becomes his wife, and he delights in her. There is a gospel image of Rebecca being brought to Isaac as the unbeliever is brought to Christ. What is it that marked Rebecca out? It was her humility, not her great beauty. And as sinners, we too should be humble. She was given her adornment by the servant, right? The nose ring and the the bracelets and and, and the clothes and all the other things. And we too are given righteousness by our Savior and good works to do as we walk in them all of our days. 
she resisted the, the pressure of her family and society to remain behind, like Pilgrim in, in Pilgrim's Progress. It's as if she, she puts her hands over her ears and flees, running to, to the narrow little gate to, to enter into the, the land of gospel freedom. Her family wants to, to keep her around and to continue to pump this guy for cash and gifts. She says, no, I'm going. She leaves. That was difficult. She chose to go on a long and difficult journey to be married. And, and life is difficult. And anyone who tells you as a Christian that you're going to have nothing but peace and prosperity your entire Christian life is either lying to you or ignorant of what life is really like. The journey to our final destination is a difficult one and requires faithfulness. She was brought to her husband. And isn't that the way it is in the church? Didn't somebody bring you to the word, bring you to, to the church, bring you to, to see and encounter and know Christ for the first time? And, and you ask those questions over and over again. Who is that? And what is that? And explain that to me. Until you were convicted of your own sins and awed and pleased by Christ. And just as she was awed and pleased by Isaac, we too will delight and praise our Savior. And so the gospel image, will you, if you do not know him, or if you do know him and, and you've gotten stuck on the path, will you be brought to Christ? Will you humble yourself, repenting of your sins? Will you receive the righteousness of Christ and walk in the good works that he's prepared for you when you believe and repent? Will you be transformed in, in the ways that you think and reject the sinful ways of your culture and your own flesh and your family? Will you run the race with endurance? Will you be brought to Christ and will you rejoice and worship and bless him? You see the gospel in this life, will you have it in your own? pray to that end for Jesus' sake. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We pray that as those who know and serve Jesus, as those who believe your word, that we would be careful that our lives would be marked out by godly principles and that we would not just bounce around like a ping pong ball in this life, but that, but that we would be laser guided in what we do, that, that we would be filled with intent and purpose, and that we would not be deterred from our goal, and that, that when the world knocks us down, we get up again. May we run in the way of your commandments because you've enlarged our hearts, as Psalm 119 says. We pray that, that we would live intentional lives and not accidental ones. And we pray that it would all be built on the foundation of the gospel. We thank you for these images. We thank you for this story. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you, who has not put their faith and trust in Christ, I pray that they would not get up and move from their seat until they have settled the matter. I pray that they would wrestle deeply with these truths and that they would put their faith and confidence in Christ. We thank you for your goodness and kindness in the word. We pray you do great and mighty things through us as we are faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.